We talk about meeting maturational needs without really articulating what those are other than our gut feeling about what's going on in the moment. So attachment theory offers an incredible array of maturational needs that can be undergirding resistances. So when we seek to resolve resistances, which is a big focus in modern psychoanalytic group, the idea is the emotional communication is often meeting some kind of unmet developmental need. And attachment theory articulates in a very specific way what those might look like. That's Dr. Aaron Black, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Black. Dr. Aaron Black holds a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Rochester, where he still lives and maintains a full-time private practice, offering individual, couples, and group psychotherapy, as well as supervision. His teaching and training activities include running training groups locally and nationally, as well as writing and publishing on the topic of group psychotherapy. He is on the governing board of AGPA and is a faculty member at the Center for Group Studies in New York. His most recent article, Treating Insecure Attachment in Group Therapy, Attachment Theory Meets Modern Psychoanalytic Technique, appears in the July issue of the International Journal of Group Psychotherapy. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Aaron Black. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Angelo. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to have you on. And I want to congratulate you on the publication of your new article. Thank you. It was a really wonderful read. And actually, right after I read it, I had a dream about one of my groups. Really? Yeah. So it actually, I think I was integrating some of what you were talking about in the article into some of the things with this particular group I had been chewing on. So it was a very, very evocative article. I'm excited to talk to you more about it. I'm glad. I hope it wasn't a nightmare. I hope it was a productive dream. <laughs> Absolutely. It was good to bring to supervision. By way of starting, I wondered if you would tell us a little bit about your background and some of your early inspirations for studying attachment and modern psychoanalysis as well as group. Sure, I'd be happy to. The article, in a lot of ways, is an opportunity for me to integrate some really long-held interests of mine. I really didn't know anything about attachment theory until graduate school. There's a professor who was at the University of Rochester at the time named Dante Schicchetti. He's at Minnesota now, who's really one of the most important people in developmental psychopathology. He was in the department when I was there, and this is like hardcore empirical research department, and the program that he was heading up is, was just like that. But they did some fascinating work looking at the differences between 
children with psychopathology and developmental deviations against normal populations through an attachment theory and biobehavioral lens. And I got really interested in it. I didn't learn anything really about attachment theory as an undergraduate. A lot of the developmental theory I had learned was really antiquated and a kind of a hodgepodge of developmental theories at different points in time, like the 40s had people who were doing one thing, and then the 50s, people were doing another. And I ended up doing a dissertation looking at marital conflict and parental divorce. I was interested in the potential buffering effects of attachment. So I had theorized at the time that children who maintained a secure attachment with at least one parent would be buffered against the well-documented negative effects of long-term interparental conflict, which turned Mm. out to be true. And so I came to attachment theory first, and then came to modern psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory really after graduate school. I've had these sort of two tracks running in my experience for a long time, and it's been a lot of fun for me to look at their interplay. Mm -hmm. Well, and it seems like it's just so clearly evident, as you got to see in the research, the effect that a secure attachment can have on us throughout our entire lifespan. It frustrated me that psychoanalytic theory has so lacked developmental theory that allows us to predict anything. Not that it's not useful, like Mahler and even Freudian psychosexual stages. These are all really useful, but they're more useful as like metaphors than they are being able to really truly predict changes in personality and behavior over time. Mm -hmm. While attachment theory really allows an empirical basis for that, which is tremendously exciting. Absolutely. It really gets to be grounded in reality. And I think that there's something about attachment theory that's also so visceral. It's something that we can, I think, so easily identify with. And I find myself just thinking about my own attachment experiences. And there's a way in which it seems like the theory lands much more in an embodied way through well, studying attachment. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. something we all know, right? I mean, you know, you and I are having this conversation partly because something went right. <laughs> and, and so it really ends up in your biology and your central encoded in your central nervous system. And, you know, I'm one of those people who believes, you know, the mind evolves out of biology. There's a profound relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. How did you then find your way into modern analysis and what drew you to modern analysis? It's kind of funny. One of my friends more than a decade ago got me into a training group. I really didn't know much about modern psychoanalysis. My analytic background was primary object relations theory and self-psychology. Self-psychology was really big in my training program in the late 80s and 90s. So I learned all there was to know about Kohut and the object relations theorists that came before him. So that was really what my training had been. So I get into this modern analytic training group. And all of a sudden, the group leaders making these interventions that seem like nutty and kind of like, where is this coming from? And how I don't understand, but it seemed really powerful. Then I could see the effects on the group. I think I had been trained with a heavy emphasis on felt experience and psychoanalysis, like in self psychology, that you don't make explicit at all with the patient, and branches of psychoanalysis where it's all about making the unconscious conscious. And there was something about the way the modern analytic group leader was working that seemed to be have, able to have the freedom and move to move in so many different directions. And there were so many things that were happening in the group that I kept labeling as attachment theory. I don't, they don't call it that. Like, what is going on here? And so it was like super confusing and like really interesting. You know, I, I was hooked. 
Um, you can just so easily see the the overlaps. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're early in a training group. None of us had been in a weekly group before. One of my colleagues, you know, kept coming late all the time. And you know, the group leader was like, "I want you to keep coming late." In fact, I don't want you to come on time. I want you to keep coming late until you can tell us more about what might be happening, what what the lateness might be communicating to me in the group. And I thought, what in the world is he doing? <laughs> I had never seen anybody so actively mirror and join resistance before. It really altered my frame of mm-hmm. how to work with patients and what's possible. Mm-hmm. I viewed that as, as an example of aligning with someone and supporting someone's insecure attachment, you know, lateness may or may not be that, but ways of people not connecting were getting mirrored and supported and and actively prescribed. And I thought, what could create secure attachment more than that? Right. Even though it's not being framed this way, and I think so much of your writing has helped to articulate it, but there's a way very naturally with modern analysis in joining somebody's resistance, it actually begins to approximate secure attachment. It's so paradoxical and fascinating, creative and fun to work with an idea like that. I think you're right. Yeah. You've written a number of papers before this one, but I was curious, what was your inspiration for this paper in particular? I had written a couple of papers before. One was called Externalizing the Wish for the Secure Base, which was my first attempt to try to integrate some of the ideas and the thinking. It's really tricky, Angela, because the birth of attachment theory literally came out of a breach between John Bowlby and Melanie Klein. And so there were a lot of things that were carried forward in attachment theory that were psychoanalytic, but there was he was such a uh, reactionary in many respects against the psychoanalytic thinking of the time, and yet did carry some of the concepts forward. So it's really tricky to write about. It's very hard to talk about the relationship between the two, the history of psychoanalysis, modern psychoanalysis, and attachment theory because of this breach. Bowlby really, really wanted to get away from infant fantasy and infant intrapsychic process, which is basically what Melanie Klein was primarily interested in. You know, in some ways, this is actually the perfect metaphor. He really did throw the baby out with the bathwater, but he gave us such a gift by focusing on the observable relational biobehavioral dynamic that form patterns and form our central nervous system. You know, it led to this thing. I mean, it's probably the most highly researched area of developmental psychology today. So those first two papers were sort of my attempts to bite off little corners of comparing the two, but they were really in preparation to write something that was more of a compare and contrast and an attempt to integrate some of the useful areas of each, which was really just trying to mirror kind of how I've been working for a long time and trying to describe it. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, sort of going back and really looking at how the two have always been able to support one another, but there's been this kind of way in which a lot has been lost in translation. Right, exactly. You know, modern psychoanalysis has a very well-articulated intervention framework. They talk about development. You know, it really ends up just being like whatever theorist is that group leader or that author's favorite. There's not a good, coherent, solid, foundational developmental framework that gets drawn upon. We talk about meeting maturational needs without really articulating what those are, other than our gut feeling about what's going on in the moment. So attachment theory offers an incredible array of maturational needs that can be undergirding resistances. 
So when we seek to resolve resistances, which is a big focus in modern psychoanalytic group, the idea is the emotional communication is often meeting some kind of unmet developmental need. And attachment theory articulates in a very specific way what those might look like. Yeah, that seemed like something that was at the heart of the paper was kind of showing how modern analysis helps attachment theory with really profound interventions that meet the client right where they are, where the group right where it is, and responds in a way that is quite powerful. And it also helps modern analysis actually have a really coherent, empirically validated developmental theory that helps the technique to be much more precise. Exactly. And and to have some sense of of why these techniques might be working. I've always been a little frustrated and frankly a little suspicious of some of the writing in modern psychoanalysis over, you know, I'm talking now over like four or five decades, because it always seems like the descriptions of why things work are just like whatever that writer thinks. And I really like the idea because I believe in the in the uh, techniques so wholeheartedly and, and work in that framework. I know they work. I think it's important for us to have a sort of theoretically and even empirically grounded idea about why mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's more coherent and more embedded in the literature than you protect the patient's fragile ego until it matures. Like that mm-hmm. happens, you know, you sprinkle like fertilizer on the patient and, and growth occurs by protecting the patient's fragile ego. Like I think we need more developmentally grounded explanations than that. I'm making a little bit of a straw man argument, but it has come out of my frustration in the modern psychoanalytic literature that there's been a lack of description of what is really happening with development. Mm-hmm. We say we're nurturing emotional maturation, but what does that really mean? Well, and it also seems like it, it allows for our understanding of what's happening to be so much more nuanced. Right. And then really able to be more precisely attuned to what the patient may be needing. Exactly based on where they are developmentally. And I think that that kind of moves into really appreciating resistance and the way resistance shows up in group. As which, is not, which is not an attachment theory concept. There is no concept for resistance in attachment theory. And aggression is really given a backseat to the management of fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So this is then something that you're really pulling in, actually looking at insecure attachment as a resistance. Exactly. Is there any more you would want to say about that? Having seen people write about attachment theory and the application of attachment theory, David Wallen's book is a good example, Attachment and Psychotherapy, which I've used in a course that I teach. And there's a lot of things to like about that book. But in the intervention section, when he demonstrates applied attachment theory, there's way too much trying to explain things to people, what secure attachment is. There's a lot of psychoeducation. And there's too much just trying to be nice, trying to be nice and loving, which for someone with insecure attachment is actually, can actually be very shaming. And so the modern analytic approach of, of trying to come at these things less directly by examining the barriers rather than go right to the deficit, but look at the barriers that the deficits create is, I think, just a beautifully elegant way to work with insecure attachment. And it seems like it is not something that needs to be promoted at all. It's actually, exactly. really, it's naturally occurring. Yeah. I mean, it's a biologically driven drive to attach. The human species would stop existing if it wasn't for our biological genetic 
drive to attach to our primary caregiver. So it is not something that needs to be promoted, encouraged. It's like saying for someone with asthma, we just need to encourage breathing. We're biologically wired to breathe. The inflammation is a barrier and the inflammation needs to be treated. So what happens naturally can occur. And then it almost leads into something that seems paradoxical, because then if we're treating resistance or looking at resolving resistance, a lot of that done, and you're making this point throughout the paper, by joining, by mirroring, by these different modern analytic techniques, that actually, it seems like in some ways, give permission or join a person in what has become the core of who they are, the core of their humanity in a way. Exactly. Even just simple mirroring, which if I think about my own style as a group leader, I probably tilt a little bit more towards joining because I find it can be just, there's so many creative ways to work with joining and I can be fairly playful and it's easy to incorporate that into joining techniques, but even simple mirroring techniques, when the patient says, I've got a headache and you say, I've got a headache too, you're creating this kind of really primitive, basic sameness that is a wonderful precursor to secure attachment. In, in such a simple intervention, you know, that doesn't require anything of the patients, almost just like looking in a mirror and, and seeing a version of, of themselves in another person. Well, and it also seems like you're approaching attachment in a different way than I think frequently gets talked about in the field. It seems like a lot of times when people start talking about attachment, they're looking at it from the standpoint of secure attachment, insecure attachment, and then avoidant or preoccupied. Or disorganized, unresolved, right? Right. And it seems like in this paper, you're really focusing on mentalization and then on what happens when people regress into insecure self-states. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about mentalization as well as those insecure self-states and how you work with them in group. Sure. There's a lot of detail to your question, so I'm not going to get into granular level, but mentalization is you know Peter Fonagy and other and others their work on the way we think about what we're feeling and I, I like to just think about it. this is how we think we reflect upon our thinking and feeling processes and those of others I mean that's basically what it is but what's fascinating about mentalization and this is so relevant to group although it happens in individual as well is that when we when we regress mentalization breaks down into its components which are the teleological, psychic equivalents, and pretend mode. I'll just explain briefly what each are. Teleological just means kind of goal-oriented. It's like what we are out of the womb, basically. A baby's cry is teleological. But it's a form of primitive communication, emotional communication, and it, it seeks some kind of concrete representation, not really a mental representation, but something literal. So if you think about someone with a personality disorder who has difficulties with mentalization, just think about a couple of patients of mine now over the years, there were people who need a concrete representation to represent the thing we're talking about. So if they feel close to me, these are people who want to press for a hug because the feeling doesn't mean anything to them. They have a difficult time representing it as something that's real to them, but a hug is real. So that's the teleological mode. Cutting other kinds of concrete behaviors Mm -hmm. tend to be teleological. Psychic equivalence is just where our internal experience and our external experience are equated. And this happens all the time in psychotherapy, in groups. This is where my feelings are facts. And so if your group leader comes late and uh, you have the experience of being neglected, 
because that's in your history, that your group leader hates you and didn't want to come to group because you're in it. So your internal reality and the external interpretation are, are really identical. Pretend mode is what Winnicott talked about in uh, his work on transitional experience. And it's just the ability to play with our feelings in our mind, knowing that there are no consequences in the real world. So it's a way children really fully decouple and use their fantasy life to play with psychological experience, knowing that it's completely unreal. And so what Fonicky and others showed is that when attachment relationships go well, these three modes of uh, mentalization they called pre-mentalistic experience become integrated. So it's almost like the three dimensions we think of in physical space, each dimension being separate and then becoming integrated into three-dimensional experience through secure attachment and attuned caregiving. And I remember when I first read that, it took me a while to get it because that concepts are a little abstract. But once I did, it really changed how I looked at patients because I could see them relating in pre-mentalistic ways and I could tell what the missing component was. So like that member I talked about where the group therapist comes late and it's obvious that he hates him or her, there's no ability to use imagination to say, well, I wonder if he got or she got caught on a phone call, or I wonder if there was traffic, or I wonder, there are a million reasons, right? But we'd have to use our imagination to wonder about those. So that's, so the pretend mode would be the missing piece of mentalization in that particular moment. Once I realized how important mentalization really is, I started thinking about what they talk about as pre oedipal experience to modern psychoanalysis. And I realized, you know, I really don't know what that is. And it's really not explained very well. It's referred to all the time. Is pre-edipal pre-verbal? Is pre-verbal pre-edipal? Are they the same thing? Are they something different? So in trying to combine the two, I really wanted to try to identify when people regress into earlier modes of functioning, what are those psychological states likely to look like, at least from an attachment theory perspective, which isn't the only perspective. There are others that are equally meaningful. So some of the qualities of what I'm calling an insecure self-state include that breakdown of mentalization where those three modes, teleological, psychic equivalence, and pretend mode are not informing one another. They're not integrated and they're not working in a coordinated way. One or two is dominating and they're disintegrated in the person's functioning. Some other qualities of of an insecure self-state are what happens with aggression. Aggression tends to be misused or misdirected when people are in a regressed, insecure self-state. That's when self-attacking can occur, when people can't control their aggressive impulses and act out. Some of the other features are things like an overlap of self and other representations. Spotnitz and others wrote beautifully about this, where there's a lot of confusion in the parts of the mind that are meant to tell us who we are versus who other people are. There's an overlap and a kind of merger that happens both interpsychically and interpersonally. I think one of the most interesting parts of insecure self-states is people stop symbolizing their experience and language effectively. Bion uh, has written some amazing things about how symbols change when people are more in more primitive states, which also informs some of uh, what I wrote in the paper. But the idea here is that words stop being truly fully symbolic. They're no longer really representing our internal states. And people are really communicating either by uh, embodying their feelings, somatizing, by enacting their feelings or, or their psychological experience or evoking it in others. 
So Wallen, David Wallen calls this embody, enact, or evoke. These are the alternative modes of communication when mentalization breaks down and people become regressed into what I call insecure self-states. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about that and inspiring is that it then really shows that it's not that pre-edible or pre-verbal experience is not the absence of something. It's not, not the absence yeah, of language exactly. per se. It's actually exactly. the presence. Yeah. There, there's an alternative way of being that's present, right. that's engaged in, and understood, and interventions can be shaped in a uh, sensitive and attuned and specific way. When we only think about pre-edible and pre-verbal as the absence of something, it leaves the clinician kind of scratching your head about like, well, I guess I'm supposed to fill in what's missing, but what does that even mean? So I found that just what you identified as a kind of intellectual cul-de-sac that I just kept driving down and going around in circles in. So in some ways, this was an attempt to help myself articulate more readily what is present when somebody regresses and how can we engage what is present to promote development. In the sense, the frame of the modern analysis actually with putting thoughts and feelings into words and telling the emotionally significant story of one's life. It seems like to be able to do that is really uh, the culmination of secure attachment. Yeah. And then all the ways people resist that give us opportunities to kind of see where they may be getting stuck in that moment. Exactly. And you're reminding me of something that might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's fascinating. So a woman named Mary Main developed the adult attachment interview. The adult attachment interview is a lot of different things. It's very predictive of parenting, of a parent's offspring's attachment classifications. It's a hugely powerful tool. Basically, it is asking someone to tell the emotionally significant story of their life. And when I realized that, it was like this huge light bulb went off. Like there are these two areas that I'm so interested in that have so much in common. And then, of course, what happens in the adult attachment interview is they don't really pay much attention to the content. They look at the coherence of the narrative, which we also are very interested in in modern psychoanalysis when people are trying to talk about their experience in group. So I just thought that was such a cool parallel between the two. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's very rich. I'm thinking about how, and I think this was something you were speaking to earlier with Bowlby, where he was really studying proximity as a way of forming secure attachment. And then in group, proximity happens through words. Yeah. But since so much of our early attachment experience is body-based, yeah, I'm curious, any thoughts that you have on how you use the body in group, both what you're picking up from other members, as well as any of the information that you're getting from within yourself during group to inform your understanding of what's unfolding? I try as much as I can to pay attention to what's happening to me physically, which is something I've really had to learn and develop. That does not come naturally to me, maybe because I was really into sports growing up. And when you're playing a lot of sports, you have to shake off discomfort all the time, whether you're getting into shape or whether you've got minor injuries. I mean, there's no way to play sports without being banged up some of the time. And I just got really good at denying or dissociating or just tolerating the physical discomfort. And so it was a little hard for me at first as a group leader to really include my own body because I was so used to treating my bodily sensations as interfering as opposed to information. So that that's like a work in progress for me in some ways. I've gotten much, much better when anything really stands out, particularly things like butterflies or 
you know, my stomach or nausea or headaches or any kind of pain. I really try to pay attention to that now and try to think about it using the modern psychoanalytic idea of the narcissistic transference. So really trying to think about what could be at the level of somatization, what could be um, getting stimulated in me that actually belongs in the group or is about the group or says something about the group, which actually in a way fits really well with attachment theory and the sort of physical way that attachment is generally enacted. And so I think about my kids and how much time I spent monitoring their physical selves, right? Not just keeping their bodies safe, but just constantly monitoring to make sure, are they hungry? Are they cold? Are they uncomfortable? Are they getting overtired? Like constantly being aware of the, their physicality and my job and my wife's job in, in monitoring and managing that, because of course they can't do that yet. I do the same thing in group, constantly looking at who's yawning, who looks sleepy, who's shifting around a lot, whose foot's moving, who is wringing their hands. I'm usually looking for ways that people are, are holding tension, making constant notes about that. More advanced groups are usually pretty good at announcing physical experience. But in the beginning, people really need to be taught to include that just the way I need to teach myself that that's an important source of information. Early in groups, I'll frequently say, there's so much tension in your hands right now. Could you try telling us what that's about? Or do you feel like telling us what that's about? And eventually, people can't seem to get the idea that those these nonverbal, physical, somatic experiences in group can be very meaningful mm-hmm. and can be talked about. And it's interesting that we have to kind of reteach ourselves in some ways, since so many of us have been socialized to not be in our body. I think especially men, we're really, you know, tough, strong, resilient. Walk it off. Walk it off. Yeah, walk it off. I mean, how many times was that said to me growing up by coaches? And and there was even like, you know, in, in the sporting world, there's even like, let's like a badge of honor to play play through an injury, play through it, walk mm-hmm. it off. So yeah, being able to really be more sensitive to that's been a really good area of growth for me. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking about trauma and the way trauma then can just immediately cause us to want to dissociate bodily experience. And yet then so much is happening right below the, the layer of language in a group that right. feels so essential to the process. Exactly. One area that I think attachment theory also really can help modern psychoanalytic approaches is by incorporating trauma. There's Mm -hmm. not nearly enough in the modern psychoanalytic literature to understand the nature of complex trauma, which can include the misuse of aggression and self-attacking and everything, but it doesn't account for the overstimulation of the central nervous system and how trauma can embed itself in the central nervous system. Attachment theory has a lot more to say about that, which is Mm -hmm. super useful. Well, and I think that that segues really in an important way into the psychology and into the attachment experience of the therapist. I think I recently saw some research that actually therapists have a statistically more common experience of disorganized attachment in their background. So there is kind of a history of having had traumatic experience related to attachment. And it made me curious how you see the attachment experience of the therapist impacting the group process. It's a great question. I was still thinking about the disorganized attachment. I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but I guess that's true. If I think about people I know and supervise and work with, there's a tremendous amount of 
that bouncing back and forth between avoidant attachment, preoccupied attachment, and unprocessed trauma. We don't come to this work usually because everything goes well. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's like really fundamental, Angelo. I think depending on the attachment style of the group leader, it determines to an enormous extent what is given emphasis and what's de-emphasized in a group. And, you know, we're human beings, and we're naturally going to de-emphasize things that we're not naturally comfortable with. I don't like using these attachment classifications, so I mean this more metaphorically than literally. Mm -hmm. But let's say the avoidant group therapist is likely to be somebody who really emphasizes independence in group members, doing it oneself, and I think would be likely to sacrifice mutuality and intersubjectivity in a way that uh, might be overvalued by a group leader with a preoccupied attachment. So when I talk, when I supervise groups and I'm working with the group therapist or therapists, I'm always interested in what kinds of experiences can happen in the group that just make people really uncomfortable. Sometimes it's sex, sometimes it's grief, sometimes it's trauma, sometimes it's aggression and conflict. But we've all got our things that, you know, make us want to get up out of our seat. That often has a lot to do with the attachment style of the therapist. Yes. And, and it seems like there's something about what our groups may end up mirroring back to us as leaders if we're finding the same things repeated in every group or yes. the same cul-de-sacs or as maybe providing important information around where we are, where we're sh how we're showing up in those particular groups from exactly. our own experience. Exactly. I have one group that's been very resistant to talking about sex. The group's been meeting for like 10 years or more with about mostly the original membership. I, I rarely ever bring it up anymore. I went through a period of like trying to help them talk more about it and resolve resistances to it and whatever. I, I, I didn't get very far with them. If I, maybe once every three months, something will come up about sex and the rap in the group is, oh, Aaron's going to be so happy that we're talking about this. Which, of course, undermines the whole conversation. Then right. it all comes about how this is what I want. Right. right. And it's only in this one particular group. None of my other groups repetitively bring up that really I'm the one that wants to talk about sex, you know, not them. Mm -hmm. Pretty much like reaction formation to me. But, <laughs> right. well, but it's so funny because groups do get an idea about like what we want to hear. And what uh -huh. we don't want to hear, what we want to experience, what we don't want to experience. And when we're with them long enough, they figure us out pretty well, I think. Right. And then it just seems like that can just translate into their own kind of flavors of resistance and finding particular ways or licenses to talk about things that are uncomfortable using you as the object of it. Exactly. I'm also thinking about humor. I think you've emphasized a couple of times the importance of the capacity to imagine and to play. And Winnicott's writing and was it the pretend mode or the pretense mode? Pretend mode, yeah. Pretense, pretense. Yeah, they're sort of used interchangeably. And thinking about some of my experiences with you and group and the way that you use humor. And I'm curious, any thoughts that you have just about the role of humor and how you incorporate it into groups? That's a really great question. Some people just have a style that's just naturally more playful. You know, when I was little, my father was extremely playful. That was the main way that he connected. And so we, I mean, from zero to seven or eight, um, most of my interactions with him involved some kind of play, including just going through the mundane aspects of brushing teeth and cleaning up. And it, there was just always some kind of way of making that more fun. 
So it's very much in me to be playful. It just has a natural way of saying, you know, we shouldn't all take ourselves so seriously here. This is important. Feelings are important. Our experience is important. All of this is important and meaningful and weighty. But, you know, it's not like we're operating on the cerebellum here. I mean, the stakes are not that high, really. You might feel uncomfortable that hopefully that's the worst that could happen here. So there is something about being able to just communicate a perspective. You know, I really like the way that humor can help us keep things in perspective, even when we're feeling really uncomfortable. I mean, I've been in groups where group leaders have used that in a way that really felt avoidant and undermining and communicated that we should really be having fun and uh, not being too serious. Too much of anything is a risk, but too much humor for sure can really undermine the process. I like it because you can off, I can often say really difficult things with a slightly humorous tone to it that can soften the intervention and help people digest what you have to say. There's something about the humor that makes it easier to internalize, to identify with, to say, I'm not saying this might be hard to hear, but I'm not saying this because I'm trying to make you feel bad. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be helpful. And I have you in mind. The way that, uh, that humor can, can be used, I think, that way, humor definitely can make a group safer early on. You know, mm. groups can be so anxious in the beginning. And the ability to just laugh together and release a little bit of dopamine and some endorphins can really help with the group cohesion early on. As long, again, as long as it's not being misused. From a psychoanalytic perspective, humor always involves that kind of Winnicott transitional space where paradox and irony and multiple meanings, I'm serious, but I'm not, it introduces these multiple levels of experience simultaneously, which is really important when you're dealing with processing transference or um, working with traumatic memories or because we're really trying to help more literal painful experience become symbolized at a higher level. And humor can create as part of the group culture, can create an atmosphere that helps with that process too. Mm -hmm. Like you can really break down the ways in which things might get stuck. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about my own relationship with my daughter and in my family, how there's a way in which uh, part of my role is to help to generate a feeling that she may be having a difficult time finding on her own. Exactly. Well, I was just curious where you were taking that and just thinking about how humor can be such an important way that a group leader helps expand the kind of range and the enjoyment, even the pleasure of interaction and of group and of shifting towards co-regulation in a way that doesn't have to feel filled with drudgery. Exactly. I really like the way you're putting it. And it's reminding me that, of course, most humor involves some kind of sublimated form of sex or aggression. And so it can also be a really healthy, constructive use of aggression to be able to use humor in a, an effective way. One of the functions of, a, of an attachment figure is to help a child be able to have a feeling they can't have on their own. Mm -hmm. So that's called anaclytic attunement. And when I teach workshops and stuff, I talk a lot about the functions of the attachment figure in emotional self-regulation um, in the child. You know, Bowlby... And his focus on proximity was an and felt security was an incredibly important start. But what Fonagy and colleagues and other people did was they really drilled into what's happening there. 
What is it about the proximity? It's not just physical proximity. Something actually goes on between the parent and the child that's regulating more than just touch or more than just physical closeness. And so you just named one of them in your example, helping Mm. the child have a feeling they're not capable of having on their own or helping the child modify a feeling that they can't modify on their own. Do you want to say any more about what the others were? Yeah. I mean, there are basically four. There's anaclytic attunement, which you just articulated with that lovely example. There's all forms of mirroring, not just what Fonagy calls mark contingent mirroring, which is about taking in the feeling and sort of giving it back in a modified form, kind of like working with projective identification, all forms of mirroring. What Kohut wrote, modern psychoanalysis, any form of mirroring is involved in emotional self-regulation between the parent and the child. So mirroring, anaclytic attunement, behavioral structure, especially having the environment be predictable, Mm. which lays the groundwork for patterning in the central nervous system, and play, you know, play in all its forms. Those are basically the four functions of an attachment figure that are critical for what we do in our work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just such wonderful guidelines for thinking about it as a group therapist. Yeah, I mean, all those, right? The group agreement is part of the uh, behavioral structure. And then we've got interventions that cover mirroring, anaclytic attunement, and play. Mm -hmm. I also really wanted to explore the role of dreams and thinking about how dreams are so central in psychoanalysis and ways in which dreams kind of get to that level of fantasy and imagination and kind of nonlinear processing. Yeah. And how much can be expressed about a group member's experience of the group as a whole, and even the ways in which they may be doing unconscious work for the group as a whole while dreaming. I'd be curious how you see the role of dreams within group and any ways in which you work with them. Well, I love working with dreams. I don't emphasize them. I'm not the kind of group therapist who does a lot of digging around looking for dreams, but I love it when people bring them up. And I make sure that when they do, that I make it clear that this is an important part of our work too, paying attention to dreams, especially dreams that that seem to have something to do with the group. I do have my bend towards attachment theory, so I can't help but think about dreaming in attachment theory terms. I like what you just said about dreams having to do with the group as a whole, because in modern psychoanalysis, sometimes we talk about the group as a whole as being the mother and the group leader being the father, whether that group leader is male, female, or some other genders. You know, we're just talking about the functions, the maternal and paternal functions. And I do think that group as a whole dreams do say something about early life with one's primary caregiver, um, Mm -hmm. when it's like a kind of group as a whole kind of dream. I also think it's super, super interesting. Apart from the content of the dream, I'm always really interested to see who gets engaged and who gets disengaged when people bring up dreams. Because often the people who are the most engaged in dreams are the ones where the pretend mode is more Mm. readily developed. They tend to be maybe more creative, have a richer fantasy life, appreciate fantasy in themselves. So dreams are an extension of that. And then people who are more concrete, more literal, more goal-oriented, more fixers, it's like I can just watch them get really disengaged when people talk about dreams. Like they kind of glaze over, they start staring at the middle of the room. So it's always really interesting to me diagnostically who gets engaged and who doesn't in a dream. Who wants to be in other people's dreams and who doesn't want to be in other people's dreams. (laughs) These things are are super, super interesting. And of course, 
it's a short step away from what are people's fantasies like. Right. Right. In some ways, a fantasy is even harder to talk about because your conscious mind created that, Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't think it's like a huge skill of mine. I really enjoy them. I've always worked with dreams with individual patients. I've seen people who like are really, really into dreams. They do a better job than I do. (laughs) So it's been perhaps another new frontier, but I love what you said about how seeing the way a member is responding to it might tell us a lot about where they are, at least in that moment. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. At least in that moment. I really love it when dreams introduce metaphors for the group as a whole or for individuals in the group that become lasting language within the group. Mm -hmm. There's something really powerful about that. Like, you know, the group's unconscious is, is engaged and active and working when dream material can actually become metaphors, ongoing metaphors in the group. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm also thinking about how this is um, your third paper. And I wanted to find out anything that you might share about your own kind of writing process oh, and sure. how, how you know when there's something that is really landing with you or it, how formulated is it? Or do you use writing as a way to formulate your thoughts? And how writing and group end up informing one another for you? The writing process for me usually starts with group. Like something will happen in a group that will really excite me. Sometimes I will just have the experience of awe, like Mm -hmm. one gets looking at the Grand Canyon or that people might get nature. I get that nature too. But sometimes I will be in a group and I will be working with a group or maybe I'm, I'm not even engaged. I'm just sort of there quietly participating. And I just can't believe sometimes what groups can accomplish. It's just remarkable to me. And so I, I try to keep track of moments like that. And I try to write down notes afterwards and just keep fragments. Margolis used to do this, I'm told. He used to write down interesting things that happened in the session and keep them. And then he would go back to them later and he would unfold them and look at them and then use, sometimes a whole paper might come out of it. Sometimes he would use little fragments. And so I started doing that myself about five or six years ago. And so I have a little like ongoing set of notes about like these just neat, really interesting, complicated things, including mistakes I make that lead to somewhere interesting that we maybe couldn't have gotten to if I hadn't made a mistake or, you know, of course, things that go south. So I try to, I try to just have an ongoing record of those kinds of things. And then what seems to happen is something starts to repeat in my mind and like kind of like a snowball. And I will spend time in the shower thinking about it or driving home and I'll wake up, if I wake up in the middle of the night, can't go to sleep, I'll start thinking about it. And it will sort of start to gather shape and weight. And at some point, I'll start to feel like, okay, I, I need to write this down. This is now at least half formed in a way that I'm excited about it. And I really want to be able to play with this some. The mechanics of writing is hard. And all of my papers I wrote while on vacation with my family what I've generally done is I've um, tried to just carve out some time. And since I, my kids are somewhat older now, it's not hard to do that early in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I keep waking up fairly early even when I'm on vacation because I'm a creature of habit. Like the last paper was written on a trip to Hawaii. And so I would make some really great Hawaiian coffee and go out on the balcony mm. from like 6 to 9.30 
every day. I just, I just wrote. And then, you know, the kids would wake up and I wouldn't touch it again until the next day. And I wrote some on the airplane there and the airplane back. And by the end of the vacation, I had a draft. Once I have a draft, then I'm like, I put all this work into this. I got to finish it. You know, so there's some threshold that I cross where I can't possibly waste all this effort by not seeing it to the end. Even though, frankly, the second half is so of writing a paper is so painful and tedious. Mm-hmm. Anybody could give up at that point, but there's something about all the sunk time and energy that kind of keeps me going. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about play earlier. Some of my friends think I'm nuts that I want to like write on vacation, but I have so many thoughts that I can't follow up on, you know, during a typical clinical work week because there's just no time. Um, I'm way too tired in the evening after working all day and I don't want to spend my weekends doing what feels like work. So this has really worked out well for me to do it this way. Yeah. It's like needing that kind of space or that potential space in order to really continue to unravel and unfurl all the different ways that this is taking form inside of you. And I don't get to write any other time, really. You know, email doesn't count. It becomes kind of a creative outlet that is an antidote to not being able to do that most of the rest of the time. That's where my motivation comes from, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I love what you said about awe or experiences of wonder as an entry point to writing. And that brings me to really my final question, which is uh, anything that you might say about what is currently pulling at your attention or creating those entry points of wonder and awe or any new frontier you see yourself on the verge of exploring? Well, I'm, I'm continuing to be interested in this relationship between attachment theory and modern analysis because I just think there are more points of potential integration between the two. For instance, one thought that I've been having lately has been when I really learned about narcissistic transference and countertransference, I had been taught those concepts before, but I was taught a very much more myopic version of them through self-psychology, a very, very narrow way of understanding that. Modern psychoanalysis really broadened my understanding of how narcissistic transference and countertransference can work. And so one of the things I'm interested in is I have the idea that that when we experience narcissistic countertransference, so the the induced feelings from the patient's narcissistic transference, sort of evacuating elements of their mind and inducing them in us, that some of what's going on there is a repetition of what wasn't regulated with their caregiver when they were little. So I I have the idea that there's a kind of communication happening there about which affects were their caregivers unable to help them with enough. So, you know, some families, you know, work really well with sadness, but anger is too scary. And so often in the narcissistic countertransference, I'll get inductions around irritation or anger. But there are a lot of different affects that children require parents or caregivers to help them with that because of the temperament of the caregiver get split off and don't get dealt with. So I'm really interested in trying to write something that tries to get at combining the modern analytic concept of narcissistic transference and countertransference with the developmental perspective from attachment theory about what that might be saying about the person's early development. Mm. And what were those points or those places or those feelings that just could not be contained? Exactly. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but a lot of the people I work with, you really can't throw them into a simple attachment category. I have people who are absolutely securely attached when it comes to sexuality, 
who are completely not securely attached when it comes to anger and conflict. And so people have these domains of what looks like secure attachment and then other domains, areas of functioning that really look a lot more like insecure attachment, which is why I hate clinically using these global categories to try to describe people. And so I think there's something interesting about the narcissistic inductions that happen and what that might be saying about what wasn't effectively regulated with the child in their early life. Oh, exciting. I'm already excited to read that paper. <laughs> I need to go on a long vacation. Yeah, no, time, for another, time for another trip to Hawaii. Yeah, it's not going to write itself, that's for sure. Right. Well, Aaron, if listeners are hearing this and they're wanting to follow up with you or to find out more about your trainings or your articles, how could people uh, contact you? And people could just email me at aeblackphd at gmail.com or they could give me a call at the office in Rochester. I'm a quick Google search away. Perfect. Well, Aaron, again, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been incredibly enjoyable. And I think that we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more for us to talk about. So we'll have to have you back on. Can I say one more thing before we stop? Please. So I told my wife this week that we were doing this. And I was talking a little bit about what you were hoping to achieve in the podcast. And so all week long, just so you know, she's been referring to you not as Angelo, but Terry Gross. Terry Gross. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> when are you going to talk to Terry? Uh-huh. That's great. Fresh air, modern analysis style. Yes. You did a wonderful job of this interview. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions, Angelo, and your follow-up. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I've just really enjoyed this back and forth. And it just adds so much pleasure to this work. And just thinking about how this can all be just an ongoing form of nourishment and play. I love that idea. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Aaron. And I'll look forward to um, having you back on the show soon. Sounds great. I'd love to come back. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. If you'd be interested in supporting our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for featured guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. Also, Visit our website, fcgps.org, to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs. We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.